I'm happy to be here today. When I looked at the map on how to get here, I'm thinking, how will I ever find this place? <laughs> and it worked out fine. So I'm going to talk about Buddhism, but I'm going to talk about how I came to Buddhism and in a way of introducing myself and Buddhism to you. So uh, I came to Buddhism in 1978. I was 29 years old. And I realized that people over 30 die quickly. And, and I didn't have a religion at the time. I was born a Lutheran, but in high school I became an agnostic. Because as some of you remember, in the 1960s, we had to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So I did that. But then as I started to turn 30, is this working? It's not working. Technology. But then I turned 30 and I said, how am I going to find a good religion for me? And I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And I read the chapter on Buddhism twice and I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist. Only because it made the most sense of all the other religions I read about. So I found a meditation center, which is where I now live and work in Koreatown section of Los Angeles. And I went on a Monday night and it was cold and it was rainy and meditation was gonna start at seven o'clock. So I got there about 6.15, really excited about meditating. But all we did was sit on the floor cross-legged and suffer. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is this what I signed up for? Is this what I wanna do for the rest of my life? Is just sit here and suffer? But then the monk came down and he gave a Dharma talk and he was a nice Jewish boy from LA who went to Japan and became a Shingon monk. And so English was his first language and I sat there and I was in a trance by what he said and how he said it. And, and I wanted to experience the world the way he did. But I was so far from that, I didn't know where to begin. And so he said, the first thing you gotta do is, is you gotta meditate. You have to relax your mind. You have to cultivate your consciousness. You have to be receptive. So I had a lot of opinions and ideas and concepts that didn't go away right away. They just sort of lingered and defined me as what I thought and what I did. And then he got into the Dharma talk. And he talked about the first talk that the Buddha ever gave, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta the turning of the wheel talk. And in this talk, the Buddha said, I have discovered four truths. And I said, wow, truth. What is truth? Because there's a relative truth. Driving 65 is a relative truth, or they penalize you. But what is an ultimate truth? I said to myself, I had no idea. So the first truth the Buddha talked about was this. He said, life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, I knew that to be the case because I sat cross-legged on the floor for hours at a time. So he was right on, and then he said, you know, the reason life is ultimately unsatisfactory is because, truth number two, we have desire and craving and attachment and aversion. And we're always trying to hold on to the good stuff and push away the bad stuff, but everything is changing all the time, moment by moment, 
and we can't do it, and it's so frustrating. I thought to myself today, you know, I want to have a good hair day, and I did. <laughs> so sometimes it works out, but other times it doesn't work out, and that's what's so frustrating. And when I say the word suffering, it's not like terrible stuff, it's like, it's little inconsistencies, or I don't feel good, it could be better, I'm hoping it's not going to get worse, it's just the little stuff, you know? And then there's this existential, I exist suffering, you know? And the suffering of I exist is, why do I exist? What am I supposed to do? It's only a short period of time, I'm just visiting, and I'll never be back again unless you're a Buddhist, and, 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 and so what does it all mean? I, I had all these questions, what does it all mean? So the third truth, the Buddha said, and now up until then he was really pessimistic, but the third truth was amazing. There is an answer to suffering. Wow, I thought to myself, what is it? And the Buddha said, nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering while you're alive. It's the end of karma, and it's the end of all future rebirths. Now that last part is not a real catch. You know, you, you hear, do I want to end all my rebirths? You know, is it better not to exist than to exist even in a bad, uncomfortable way? And I think what the Buddha meant by this was, I have found a way to exist without being born. Now that is amazing. Because the problem with being born is we have to die. Everything that's born exists and ends. Everything, even this planet of ours. So how did he figure it out? He said, well, nirvana is unborn and undying. And if you're here because of nirvana and not because of birth, you never have to die again. Now, dying is something that's hard to think about until you have a cat or a dog and then they die. Because they never last long enough. Have you noticed that? 10, 15 years and they're gone. And you go, wow, little Bobby Joe, the light of my life. But then, little Joe shows up, or little Bobby shows up. So you get to do it again, and then they die. And sometimes you get a couple cats and a couple dogs, and they all die. And you go, wow, it's such a sad thing to live because everything has to die. And every time we are reborn as a Buddhist, we look at all the parents we've had, and all the siblings we've had, and all the lives we've had, and they've always ended. We've always shed a tear because it hurts to say goodbye. And the tears we have shed in our existence could fill the, the oceans of the planet Earth. I'm going, wow, okay. So maybe if I can figure out how I get to nirvana, and then I never have to die again, I won't be sad. I won't have this suffering. I won't be attached and I won't have aversion. But how do you do that? How do you get there? And the Buddha said, in the fourth truth, I have discovered the noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. 
Now, it sounds like a lot, and it is, but it's something that you do like every day. You don't go in order, you just sort of do this stuff, and then life gets better. So there's three categories, sila, samadhi, and panya, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom, or insight. And the first place we start as a Buddhist is we take five precepts. These are training precepts. These are not commandments. These are not rules. These are training precepts. They are, I will practice not to take life. The practice part is really important because you're practicing. I'm going to practice not to take life. And you go, well, how hard can that be? You know, so you don't kill dogs or cats or human beings or cows or birds. But then that darn mosquito shows up. And it's just sort of buzzing around and it just wants to take your blood and maybe give you some disease. And you say, you know what, the easiest way to get rid of the mosquito is just to kill it. That ends all my problems. You know, but then you say, but I'm practicing not to kill. And practicing not to kill takes a lot of time. Because now you have to get a jar, and you gotta chase the mosquito, and you catch the mosquito, and then you take it outside, and you let it go, and you know it's gonna find the hole in the screen on the window. So it takes a lot of time not to kill. And that's why we have war instead of negotiations. Because we can have a war in a couple years, everybody's dead, problem solved, but they never get everybody. There's always one or two that make it through and they start again. But negotiation is changing attitudes, changing the way we experience our life, changing the way we understand what it means to be human and work together. So the first precept we practice is not to take life. The second precept is not to take what is not given, which is different than stealing. So it's not given. So you're at Denny's, and you got a hamburger coming, and there's a bottle of ketchup on the table. And now you have to ask the waitress if you can use the ketchup, because it wasn't given to you. It's just assumed you knew it was there for your use, and you call the waitress over, and you say, is it okay to use the ketchup? She says, of course. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Well, I'm a Buddhist. Ah, <laughs> oh, I understand, okay. But should you be eating this hamburger? <laughs> and as it turns out, the Buddha ate meat. Go figure. <laughs> now, why did he eat meat? Because he was a beggar, and beggars can't be choosers. And people gave him food, and he had to eat it. And he told all his monks, don't have any preferences. Eat what is given to you. Food is medicine. We need the medicine to stay alive so we can practice the Dharma, so we can achieve nirvana and end our suffering. So you gotta eat, even if you don't like it, even if you don't want it. Now there are people who are vegetarians who became Buddhist monks that had to eat meat. Can you imagine? how conflicted they must have been because they looked at being a vegetarian as better than being a Buddhist. But in order to be a Buddhist, you had to eat what was given. What a dilemma. 
Okay, the third precept is no sexual misconduct. Go figure. All you got to do is watch the news and you think everybody is indulging in sexual misconduct. But the problem with sexual misconduct is that it's not skillful. It's not good karma. And if you're a monk, you can't have sex at all. Now, when I found that out, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a monk because I sort of like to have sex. But then I asked the teacher, I said, but why can't monks and nuns have sex? And he said there are two really good reasons. Number one, having sex requires you eventually to have a house and a mortgage and car payments and college tuition for all the little creatures that come around because you've had sex. And it's expensive. And you're working in an economy of generosity. People are giving you money. And you can't count on it if they're giving it to you. So you need to have a simple life. And a simple life means you can't have sex. But number two, and this is the most important part about not having sex. When you have sex, you can be in love. You can be happy. You can be committed. But there's one thing you will never be, and that is free. Free? Who wants to be free? So if you want to be a Buddhist monk or a nun, you got to want to be free. Because that's what the whole purpose is, to be free. And free from what? Free from suffering. It makes perfect sense. Okay, number four, not to speak unskillfully. No harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip, idle chatter, none of that fun stuff. You're just going to be talking. <laughs> Just talking straight, reality, yes and no, no judgments. Well, that's the ideal. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to get there. But just to speak skillfully so you don't hurt other people. You don't make them suffer any more than they already are. And number five, this is the hardest one of all, not to consume intoxicants. Wow, you know. What's wrong with getting high? Everybody's doing it. Now you can go out and buy marijuana. We can get high in so many different ways. And isn't it so much fun to get high? To just mess up your reality for a few hours? To be somebody you never were before? Well, the problem with being high, according to Buddhism, is this. Every time you get high, it steals your wisdom. You become really stupid. And you... <laughs> And you do dumb things, and you suffer even more than you did before. So we're working real hard to have clarity and insight into the true nature of reality. And every time we would take a drug or so, we would lose that. We'd have to regain it. And it gets harder and harder to gain back every time you lose it. And sometimes you can't find it at all. So those are the five working precepts of being a Buddhist. That's where we start. That's the foundation. Even if we never meditated a day in our life, just by following those five precepts, you would be a good neighbor and a good friend. You really would. 
Okay, now we get into meditation, mental cultivation, 44 different kinds of meditation, four kinds of insight, 40 kinds of tranquility meditation. Now, in the beginning, I wanted insight, but I opted out. I went for tranquility. I want tranquility. I want peace. I drive the freeway almost every day. I don't want to have too much insight into the true nature of all those people driving crazy. <laughs> I just want to avoid them. I want to have a certain level of acceptance with that insanity and just go, okay, that's just the way it is, man. They're just driving crazy. Relax, find peace, it's okay. So over the years I've done this tranquility meditation, it's like a cocoon that wraps around me. And I'm able to then go into a variety of situations and feel comfortable and peaceful and tranquil. I like that idea, you know? So we meditate to find balance. We meditate to find balance. And balance is so hard. The middle path, Buddhism is often referred to as, the middle is the best place to be. Now I know some of you are going to disagree with that because we're getting ready for 2020 elections. So we got to commit ourselves to the left or to the right, but not the middle. Because who's going to be in the middle? None of the politicians are going to be in the middle. You know? But we can be in the middle and we can have clarity and we can have kindness and we can have discernment and we can understand who may be the least problem rather than the best person. And there you go, the middle way, the middle path. So we're trying to cultivate our mind to come to a place of peace in the middle without committing to the left, without committing to the right. And finally, we come to the insight, the true nature of reality, the things we want to know, the things we want to experience. Because I learned a while ago that everything I have read, everything I have thought, every word I have ever used is simply a menu. It's never the meal. It's simply a map. It's never the terrain. And in order to get rid of the map, in order to get rid of the menu, to experience the meal or the terrain, we have to leave words behind. We have to leave concepts behind. We need to come to a direct experience of our present moment, of our life. And when we do, we find three characteristics. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Anicca, first one, impermanence. Everything changes, all the time, every moment. Nothing ever stays the same longer than a moment. Which is sort of fun when you think about it, because that means everything we do is always the first time. We've never done this before. You may have come to this room before, and for a very long time, but it's really the first time you've ever been here. It feels like the first time to me, and if I was ever invited back, I'd have to say it was the first time again. And if it's the first time, every time, it's always exciting because we don't know what to expect. And if we do know what to expect, it's an illusion. 
It's an illusion. We think we know what's going to happen the rest of the day. We're going to have lunch, maybe visit with friends or family, maybe go to the beach, but we don't know. Those are concepts we're projecting into the future, which never has existed ever. The future, when it happens, is always right now. And the past is just sort of a fragmented idea of what might have happened in a few words and sentences that maybe are taken out of context and now have a completely different meaning and they never happened before. And the people say to me, well, don't you sort of miss the past? Because I try to think back. I, I'm not as good as I used to be. The older I get, the harder it is to think back. You know, and I can't, months and years sort of blend together. And I go, it's just a long time ago. <laughs> Don't you feel uncomfortable by just having it as a long time ago? I said, no, not at all, because I'm here right now. This is the most important thing, not what I think I forgot, but what I'm doing right now. Well, how about tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I don't know. When tomorrow comes, it'll be today. <laughs> Hopefully I'll wake up, you know, but one never knows. So a Nietzsche, impermanence, ever-changing, everything, all the time. There's no thing to hold on to. There's no place to stand firm. It's just a constant state of flux, like the river going down the banks. And we stick our foot in the river. And somebody said, it's not the same river, and it's not the same foot. And they are so right. So the river becomes our friend. And I tell people, you know, I'm 70, I want to do less. People want me to do more. Come on, you can do more. You've got things to share. You've got things to do. I don't want to do more. I want to do less. I want to sit by the river, watch the water go by. Maybe see the clouds for the first time. But I don't want to stay busy all the time because at some point, I got to work on myself. At some point, it'll be time for me to leave. And they're all going to say, oh, Kusla, don't go. And I'm going to say, I got to go. I can't stay any longer. It's time for me to go. But we're going to miss you. You never knew who I was in the first place, because every time you saw me, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was some impersonator pretending to be me who thought he was me. But it wasn't me. It was a completely new person. Okay, Kusla. <laughs> we'll see you later, man. The second truth you start to understand on the Buddhist path is that life is always going to be unsatisfactory. There are moments of pleasure and happiness, granted, but because of impermanence, they always change. So they're not going to last very long, and when they do come, just enjoy them. Just be open and friendly with them and say, so glad you came to visit me today. And I know you're going to have to go, but while you're here, thank you. And then all those happy, good times go away. And don't cling or hold on to them, because that's when you suffer even more. Let them go, because something else is going to happen. It always does. Could be worse, could be better. You don't know. That's the exciting part about life. You don't know. So embrace every moment. And if you can figure out how to have equanimity, perfect balance, none of those moments are going to be good or bad. They're just going to be moments. And you're going to go, I'm having a moment. <laughs> you go, Whoa. Is it good or bad? I don't know. I don't need to go there anymore. It's just a moment. 
So cool. So suffering will be part of our life. And when we're not suffering, be thankful. Be grateful. Wow, I'm not suffering for this hour and a half. You know, my feet don't hurt. My mind is relatively clear. You know, just enjoy that moment. Don't expect it to last. Don't expect it to show up. Be surprised. And number three, this is the toughest one of all, but I've given you a little insight already. Number three is there is no self. Now, you may have heard that term before. You may not have made any sense. Originally, it was more like there is no soul. Now, when I first came to Buddhism and found out there wasn't a soul, I was a little disappointed because everything and everyone in my life was sort of affirming the fact that there was a soul. And I would look at the Kia soul driving down the street, and I go, even a car is called a soul. And you're telling me the soul doesn't exist? And the Buddha said, well, you know, it may exist, but that's not who you are. And you go, wow, well, who am I? That's the big question. Who are you? You know, and sometimes your wife or your husband might say, who are you? And you don't even have a good answer. Because you don't know either. You don't know who you are. So the Buddha said that we are a process, not an event. Now, I always wanted to be an event. And then he said, I'm just a process. I'm just like the river. I'm always changing. Every time I have a new experience or learn something new, I'm a different person. Sometimes I'm more wise and sometimes I'm more stupid. But I'm always a different person. I'm always evolving into something else. And I only last for a moment. And so it's like a relay race, if you will. So I was 10 and then I turned 20 and the baton was handed off to the 20-year-old. And then I turned 30, and then I was somebody else, and then I was 40, and then I was old, and then I was 50, and then I was getting really old, and then I was 60, and now I'm 70. And I'm going, man, it's not that old. 50 felt older than 70. And then I'll be 80. And all the while, physically, mentally, emotionally, I'm turning into different people all the time. I mentioned earlier, at my present state in life, I no longer want to be attractive. I simply don't want to be repulsive. And I work hard at that. <laughs> I take a shower. I use deodorant. You know, I just, it sort of works OK. But as we go through life, certain things mean a lot more than they used to. You know, like I don't like waiting in lines. That's a waste of time. It can't be that good at the, at the front of the line. I don't know. You know, I, I feed nine homeless cats every day. And so I go to Food for Less sometimes because they've got really good prices on cat food. And I'm in line with my cart and I have Hostess cupcakes and four cases of cat food. <laughs> and the clerk looks at me and she says, sir, can I ask you a personal question? I said, of course. Are you single? I, yes, how did you know? <laughs> 
So we're always standing in line for something in L.A., Orange County. There's always lines every place we go. And as I get older, I don't want to stand in line anymore. That's why I like Amazon.com. I don't, I don't have to stand in line. I just click and click. It works fine. So we have these three aspects of Buddhist wisdom. Everything is changing all the time. Life will always turn out to be not what you think it's supposed to be. And you aren't who you think you are. Now, those three aspects, those three deep insights into the true nature of life, allow us not to cling and hold on to stuff. Because there's nothing to hold on to, and there's no one to hold on to it. Okay, so just let it go. Something else will take its place. So after 30-some years of studying Buddhism and meditating, people say, well, how close to enlightenment are you? I said, I'm very far away. I've been much too busy. Because what happens when you start to practice on yourself is you start to see that everybody needs a little practice and sometimes a little help. So I, I was a community volunteer for 20 years. You know, I was state prison for men, I was juvenile hall, I was UCLA, Buddhist club, spiritual care department, UCLA, doing all this stuff, trying to help people. And they said, well, how many people have you helped? I said, no, I didn't help anybody. Because you don't know. Anybody who's ever volunteered will tell you, you don't know what the result will be or what the reaction will be because you have to leave. You got to go home. You're there a couple hours. You hope somebody heard something that might make a difference, but there's no guarantee. So you just do it to do it. And you hope that people can listen. You hope that people have found a way to listen, to understand what you're saying, but no guarantees. So after 20 years of community service, it's time for me to serve myself. And the irony is, there's no self to serve. <laughs> so I continue to practice. I continue to read. I'm on Facebook. I have a lot of followers. I have cat pictures. But I also have some Buddhist stuff in there, sort of in between, sort of hidden away. So people might be entertained and educated at exactly the same time. But the cat pictures always win. <laughs> I don't know what it is about those cats. So, what can I tell you about Buddhism? Buddhism is a unique way of living in the world. It's a way of taking personal responsibility, not blaming anybody else for your failures, but being grateful to everybody for your successes. Because we're always interconnected and interdependent. None of us can live alone. Even though in America, being alone and in charge and living on top of a hill surrounded by a fence is oftentimes the ideal, it's not. Because we will always be interconnected and interdependent. It is something we do together, whether we know it or not. So thank you for listening to me and being here today and giving me something to say.